Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia, and co-host of this channel. Wang Gungwu has long been recognised as a world authority on the history of China and the overseas Chinese. His scholarly work has been inspired by his own experience growing up Chinese in Southeast Asia, but with strong family, educational and indeed emotional connections to China. In his new memoir, Home is Not Here, he recollects his upbringing in British Malaya at a time of great political turmoil, including the outbreak of the Sino-Japanese War and the Japanese invasion and occupation of Malaya. Following World War II, his studies in China at the National Central University in Nanjing were cut short by the imminent victory of the Chinese Communist Party in China's civil war. This book is an intimate reflection on the themes of family, education, language, China's identity, and the search for a sense of home during a tumultuous period in Southeast Asian and Chinese history. Professor Wang Gangwu is chairman of the East Asia Institute at the National University of Singapore. Professor Wang, thank you so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book. Delighted to have a chance to talk to you. Now, you've had an extraordinarily full and successful working life as a scholar and as an academic administrator, but can you tell us the reason why you decided to write a memoir not on your adult life but of your childhood? It all began when my wife wrote her story for our children and our children asked me, why don't I write about my childhood? It started that way, just writing for my children to let them know what it was like to have grown up under circumstances totally different from what they were experiencing. That was some years ago. I put it aside, but was later persuaded by friends and others that telling your story to family, to your children, is not done enough. And there are not enough records of that kind about the past. And when they heard that I had done something for my family, they asked me, why don't I offer that for publication. I looked at it again and made a few changes and put it, sent it out to my friends. And it, it was uh, received rather well, surprisingly well, and they thought, that's publishable. So that's how it began. Now, you write that you spent most of your childhood growing up in Ipoh in what was then uh, British Malaya. How did that come about? Well, I come from a family that was never known to have traveled anywhere outside of China. It's an old literati family, very much devoted to provincial living and preparing for service to the empire, that kind of background. And so there was never any question about migrating anywhere. But my father was educated, 
in a university and was inspired by the idea that the Chinese overseas needed Chinese education. There was a great demand for new modern Chinese schools. And my father had a a training in education as well as uh, Chinese classics and as well as English literature. He was very fond of English literature. So he responded to the call to go out and teach the overseas Chinese about China. And that's how he got a job in Singapore and Malaysia, Malaya at the time. And eventually off, was offered a job of uh, to be principal of a Chinese high school, a first Chinese high school in Surabaya in Java in the Netherlands, East Indies. So my father decided to take the job, married my mother, and the two of them went to Surabaya. And there I was born. But it was not a good time because it was the time of the Depression. I was born in 1930. That was the year after the Depression. And the economy of Java was very bad. As a result, the school virtually was bankrupt. He moved to Malaysia, into Ipoh, where he got a job. And there I grew up. I never expected to to be there. Neither did uh, my family. They thought it was a temporary stopover, get a job, get some money, and return to China as quickly as possible. As it turned out, it wasn't it wasn't as easy as that. By the time they thought they were ready to return, war had threatened in China with the Japanese invasion, and uh, her families back in China told them probably better for them to stay out to help the family. And as a result, we stayed on, not expecting that uh, several years later, not only the war in China went badly for the Chinese, the Japanese invaded Malaya and the British lost. Now, that was something that uh, no one expected at the time. And as a result, we had to live under the Japanese for three and a half years. That's the background to how our family ended up in Malaya. One of the central themes of the memoir is family. And I'd like to start by asking you about your parents. You've actually integrated into the memoir your mother's recollections of this period. And the narrative switches several times from your recollections to hers. And at times, it almost feels like your your mother is talking to you and you're replying to her. Can you tell us about your mother and her influence on your life? Because I was an only child, my mother was very concerned to tell me about our family in China, because they were prepared to go back to China and expected me to return to China with them and be a Chinese uh, to serve China in the way that the family has always done. She spent a lot of time talking about the past. But what happened, of course, that once I left home to go to university and I never really went back home again, and we never talked again after that. In her 70s, I think, when she was living with us, she quietly sat down to write what she considered to be her story for me to understand what happened to our family. When I was writing my story to my children, I reread my mother's memoirs and I was terribly moved by it. And I thought, really, her voice was so much more authentic than my own. So I started to translate. She wrote it in Chinese, of course. I trans- translated the bits which I thought would be of use and interest to my children. And that was part of the whole story I included for my children. When the time came to publish, I looked at that and I really thought she did come out with a much more authentic voice, someone who actually been through it consciously, knowing what happened during my childhood. So I thought I should include that. I I did include it for the children anyway, and it did seem to fit in with the book. And the publishers agreed, so that was how it went in. You write that your father had the greatest influence on your education. Can you tell us about your father and your relationship with him and how he educated you? 
My father was a very reticent person, didn't talk very much, but he had been trained as an educator. His whole life has been dedicated to education. He was very conscious of what was available in the schools at, uh, in Malaya. As I grew up, he obviously had to take two things into account. One, that he and, I, and my mother had to prepare me for a life in China where we're going to return one day. But secondly, once it was decided I wasn't going back to China immediately, he, he had to send me to school. There he made the decision, which uh, has been of a very intriguing one. I've asked him about it, but he's never given me a full answer. Why did he send me to an English school instead of a Chinese school? His simple answer is simply that he could teach me Chinese himself at home, while going to an English school would enable me to acquire a new education, uh, an English education, because he was a great admirer of English literature, a subject that he had done in, at university, really a great admirer of English literature generally, and thought that he had to start very late in life, uh, learning English only in his late teens, and if he could give me a better start with English language, I would appreciate the literature better. As a result, I went to an English school, which had a different worldview. And at home, I was brought up as a Chinese boy, almost as if I was in China. Another theme, you've touched on it there, but another theme that runs through the book is language. You write about your experience learning Mandarin, classical Chinese, the various Chinese dialects, Hakka, Hokkien, Cantonese, um, as well as English and Malay. Later on at school, you learn, and university, you learn, I think, French, German, and Latin. Can you tell us how this multilingual upbringing has sort of affected you? Quite frankly, when I was growing up, I was not conscious that this was un anything unusual. In fact, I think most of us growing up in a town like Ipoh had had a very multilingual background. In my case, we spoke Mandarin at home. That was the home language of both my parents, none of the dialects. Whereas outside, of course, of the home, all the other Chinese had come from different parts of southern China and spoke dialects like Hokkien, Cantonese, Hakka, Teochew, and others. And then in school, of course, I, I learned English. And among my friends in school, they came from different groups. There were many who came from India, from Ceylon, and some were from neighboring countries like Sumatra and Borneo. It's a very multiple identity society for everybody. In fact, the English term for it was a plural society. So I grew up in that and took that as natural, nothing unusual. And I think most of my friends had a similar mixed background. Mine was slightly different only because I had fewer Chinese, Mandarin spoken at home, and then written classical Chinese which my father insisted that I learn. And then at school, a colonial English which is not even quite that of a schoolboy school in England. It's very much a training of colonials to make us useful to the British one day. You write that another way in which you learned to become interested in the English language and maybe Western culture more generally was by reading novels and also by watching English and American movies. Can you tell us something about that? That was really more accidental because I think it had, had the Japanese not invaded uh, in Malaya, my life would have been quite different, probably. Uh, apart from other things, I, <laughs> I might well have gone back to China. But when the Japanese came and occupied the country, my father sent me first to a Chinese school. But when he discovered that the Japanese were insisting on teaching more and more Japanese in school, my father took me out of school. 
So for more than three years, I was really learning at home, picking up things as I went along on my own. So I had no schooling for three years. And it was by accident that uh, my father, who was made to look after a library of books that were picked up from the various houses left abandoned, and he asked me to go and help him just move the books around. And they all were basically popular fiction that particularly expected wives, I think, were, were, were their favorite reading. And I found a whole stack of them. I picked up the ones that I enjoyed, but also at the same time picked up some classical literature as well, 19th century novels, 18th century English novels. And I read a, a lot of them simply by taking them from this library that my father was looking after and uh, reading as many as possible. And my English improved tremendously. I was learning almost nothing else except this English through these novels I was reading and the classical Chinese that my father taught me together with other sons of his friends, he taught me throughout that period. So my education for the three years was classical Chinese on the one hand and self-education through popular English novels, which I think uh, did no good to my taste in literature. And your interest in English and American movies, where did that come from? We were starved of films throughout the Japanese occupation. So when the war ended and we were waiting to return to China, and my father decided to wait about nearly, nearly two years before we went back, wanting me to finish school, because I had to go back to school and adapt myself to a more disciplined education. It was pretty hard for me, actually. But at the same time, films came, hundreds of films. The films that were made during the war and before the war that had been, you know, kept out of uh, the country. And the number of uh, cinemas showing these films were just too tempting. It was very, very cheap. It was almost uh, free in some cases. There were so many of them, and I just found it irresistible to go and see them because it not only gave me a chance to learn more English and improve my English, there were actually fascinating things about the war. A lot of it was about the war. And I had learned something about the war because although we were cut off from the rest of the world during the occupation, my family lived with a rich Chinese family who employed my father as a tutor for their children. They had a private secret radio, which the head of the family wanted to use to find out what was happening to the war between Japan and the United States and Britain, and what would happen when the British and Americans would win and come back to Malaya. And so he kept me, because I had more English than anybody else in his family, listening to this radio. And of course, through that time, I picked up a lot of very miscellaneous information about American and British plans and interests and military successes here and there. Picked up a lot of names about Midway, the wars in Guadalcanal, wars in the Philippines, wars in Burma, all sorts of bits and pieces, which uh, at the time didn't mean all that much to me. But when the war ended and all these films came in, made in by, mostly by the Americans, but also by the British, I found myself with some very familiar things which I had heard about and just couldn't resist going to see them. And I just became addicted for more than a year and a half and saw more films than I should have. Despite your Chinese education and your family's wish to eventually return to China and your own sense that China was your real home, you actually began to grow more attached to, to Ipoh in Malaya. 
you write about that the multi-ethnic, the multilingual, the multi-religious environment of Ipoh at, at that time. It, it seems to me that this is one of the central experiences of the Southeast Asian Chinese, which perhaps distinguishes them from Chinese in China. Could you say a little bit more about your experience growing up in the, the plural society of Malaya? I think, as I said, most of my friends had the same set of uh, miscellaneous languages and cultural backgrounds that I had. For myself, because it was so normal to me, it was a very attractive kind of multiple, almost, you might say, low-level cosmopolitan environment. I found it very attractive. I enjoyed it. I found it that all this mixture of people so interesting, different ways of thinking and living, different kinds of families, different kinds of uh, concerns and habits and cultures and so on. And I took that as normal and, and decided I loved it very much. In fact, all my life, I think I've enjoyed, continue, and I still do that, continue to enjoy being in a very mixed society and consider that to be the ideal society. At this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the political events in East Asia during your youth, which would have fateful consequences for your education and for your connection to China. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Wang Gangwu about his memoir, Home is Not Here. In December 1941, the Japanese invaded and occupied most of Southeast Asia within a very short period of time. And the period of the Japanese occupation of Malaya was a very difficult one for your family. Can you say a little bit about your family's experiences during this period? Underlying the Japanese occupation was really a several years of, you might say, Chinese consciousness growing, the sense of nation, a Chinese nation being invaded by the Japanese, the horrible stories that were transmitted about what the Japanese were doing to the Chinese people in China. All this, I think, introduces a new element that is a sense of China being very weak and divided and being bullied by foreign powers. Uh, The Japanese were the worst of them in the eyes of the Chinese because they actually tried to take Chinese territory and invaded China and killed hundreds of thousands of Chinese. But of course, it all started with the imperialist movements of the 19th century. But that sense of nationalism was actually very fractured for a long time. But the Sino-Japanese war in China heightened that sense of nationalism. And it did come to the overseas Chinese because the Chinese government was in such a powerless state that they continually sought help, financial help, as well as manpower help, from Southeast Asia. And the Chinese were encouraged to donate money to the nationalist cause. Because of that, the Japanese, when they took Malaya, looked upon all Chinese as potential enemies and treated the Chinese particularly harshly. I mean, there were killings in Singapore and all over Malaya. All those Chinese who were involved in anti-Japanese activities in the eyes of the Japanese were a threat to their occupation of Malaya. So they 
set up on a policy which was clearly racist. They took the line that they should support the Malays as the natives and treat the Chinese who were allies or who were sympathetic with the British or the British who had supported the Chinese against the Japanese as enemies. And of course, that made the lives of the Chinese particularly precarious. And it was in that context that the Chinese who were not subject directly to prosecution kept their heads down and just barely hoped to survive those years. And of course, many Chinese supported the British, including those who supported Force 136, the British efforts to prepare for the reconquest of Malaya. Many Chinese joined, joined them, went into the jungle, trained with the British. And that, of course, added to the Japanese fear of the Chinese. So the Chinese on the whole had a very bad time, but they survived by just keeping the head down. Of, of course, we realized that the Japanese couldn't do too much because they needed to send their armies to fight in Burma and elsewhere, and scattering the Japanese army around the whole of Southeast Asia meant that they didn't have really that enough troops to do the kinds of things that they would love to do. So in the end, they also had to recruit Malays and Indians and Chinese others to collaborate with them and help them bring at least some semblance of order and economic growth uh, under those circumstances. Very, very difficult. And uh, the locals had a clear sense that sooner or later the Japanese would go and in the meantime prepare for the time when the British would return and what would Malaya be like after such a devastating period of Japanese occupation. All these things, I think, were in the minds of all the people there. You write that much of your Chinese education focused on reading the, the classics, but during the war and later you became more aware of China's modern political predicament. I'm just wondering whether following World War II, had you begun to form a, a political position towards the conflict in China, the civil war, the nationalists and the, the communists? I grew up, of course, with the sense that China was my home. I will return to China one day. Feeling for China, being anti-Japanese, was the norm. One day we will return to China and I would serve China as a good citizen and try to rebuild a China that had been so divided and weak for so long and so badly bullied by everybody. That's the sense I had. At the same time, because I was in the English school before the war, during the war I had no formal education, no schooling. I had lost my contacts with anything British except through those novels that I had the chance to read and never developed any sense of identifying with the British when they returned. So that part was different from my friends. Many of my friends looked forward to the British returning. I did too, but for the different reason. Just that, that means the end of the Japanese occupation, and then it was possible for us to con contemplate returning to China. So I had a rather somewhat different angle from most of my other friends who wanted the British to help them rebuild the country and that following the end of the war with, with anti-colonialism being the slogans of the day, everybody looked forward to the day when the British will leave. A place like Malaya could be a new country. What kind of a country, the kind of plural society, what kind of nation can you build from such a plural society were very uncertain questions. I don't think anybody knew what would it be like but they were hopeful that they could live together and have a fresh start. And when the British leave, then they would have a chance to build a new nation. But of course, things were much more complicated. As we all know, the war ended and it became a new kind of war, a war that eventually became what was described as a Cold War of ideological war. And in that context, what was imperialism and colonialism seemed to be on the side of the capitalists and what the communists 
pretended to support all the nationalists, but they were, of course, having in mind a kind of international communism to replace capitalism. Most Chinese were not at all interested in communism, especially the overseas Chinese. They come from entrepreneurial business backgrounds. They were actually more sympathetic with the capitalist opportunities that the Western imperialism had brought to the region. And they were quite happy, I think, to go on developing their lives in that way. But the conflict, the ideological conflict between communism and capitalism took a very violent form in Malaya. The Chinese who had supported the British against the Japanese were also dedicated communists. They set out to fight against the British, to help to speed up, as it were, British departure and develop an independent Malaya in which they would have a big role to play. The conflict became very complicated because, on the one hand, there were Malay and Chinese nationalists who wanted Malaya to be its own independent country. These people were, on the whole, sympathetic with the British way or the capitalist way of developing the economy. And therefore, the situation after war took a different shape altogether. It became a question of defending a kind of British heritage with Malay, Chinese, plural society, seeking to build a nation to fight off a communist insurgency that was threatening to take over the country by force. And so there was an emergency going on in fact, for nearly 10 years. Of course, ultimately, we know the British won and the communists lost, but that was by no means clear uh, at the time when uh, we, the war ended. And as a young boy, I was aware this was happening, but not, of course, fully understanding the full ramifications of that, and particularly because I was preparing to leave to go to China. My parents were preparing to leave, and uh, we didn't pay close attention to the details. I was just studying and preparing myself to live in China. But by the time I returned from China, the Malaya that I knew had completely changed. It was now a world of people hoping for a new Malaya, a new nation, and those who were determined to make that nation to be anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, and communist. And that was a very serious world that I came back to from China in 1948. One of the, the senses you get from the book is that you're, you're part of these two worlds, the, the Southeast Asian or Malayan world and what's happening in China. If we could just return to China for a minute, you write that after the war you, you were successful in passing the examinations for entry into the prestigious uh, National Central University in Nanjing at a time when the nationalist government was fighting this losing struggle with the communists. You tell us about the, the lifelong friendships you formed at university with students who would later on become some of China's foremost scholars. Could, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like being a university student in China at this tumultuous time? Frankly, I was not aware how privileged I was to have got into university in China at that time. There were very few universities. Universities are very small. The university that I got into, which is a sort of the flagship of the nationalist government in Nanjing, had a total of 4,000 students, and it was the largest university in China. So being a university student was already a very privileged position. But as I said, I didn't fully understand that and took that for granted. So I therefore had the opportunity to meet students who were really some of the best students in the country who sat for the entrance examinations to these universities in China. Because of the war and economic problems that the nationalist government had, they actually took in fewer students than they normally would have. 
the policies in China were quite different from those elsewhere. Everybody who got into university had a free education. In fact, even our living was looked after. Everyone lived in, everyone was fed, everyone was given some clothes to look after ourselves in summer and winter. So in that way, we were privileged. The government's policy was all these students one day when they graduate would become important figures in the government, would serve the government in one way or the other. And that was the underlying sort of principle behind the education. So in that sense, I was privileged to be among some pretty bright students from the beginning, some of them so well educated that I felt like a little peasant boy from the countryside. My English education in a colonial school was totally inadequate compared to the kind of education that these very bright Chinese students had in their own hometowns or in the cities like Shanghai and Nanjing, uh, who were really very, very sophisticated. So I learned a tremendous amount from them. I think I probably learned more from them than from my teachers. My teachers themselves very well trained, but working under terribly difficult conditions. They were so badly paid. The economy was in such a horrible state. I think my teachers could only survive by having more than one job. I remember we never saw them after class. They would be running off, heading off to some other job elsewhere, just to enable them to survive. So our education, formal education, was limited to what was happening in the class. But the rest of the time, we learned for ourselves, among ourselves. I learned, as I said, from my friends. They were very kind to me because I was the odd man out. I was this foreign-born Chinese whose Chinese was a bit odd and whose English was better than his Chinese. And I was very young. I was one of the youngest in the class. I enjoyed all their attention. I was not to know that our friendship would only be so brief. It was just a little more than a year. And then the communists uh, were pressing hard on the nationalist government. The university was closed down and everybody was sent home. I had nowhere to go for a while, but eventually my parents insisted that I return to Malaya because I think they saw that the communists were winning and there was no chance for the nationalists to revive the university again. Being an only child, they insisted that I should return. And so, quite frankly, very reluctantly, I left Nanjing and all my friends and came back to Malaya. But that period of time, you see, was very brief. I can't say that I knew them all that well, but I had fond memories. And it was many, many years later that China had closed down under the People's Republic of China, all their little conflicts which led ultimately to the Cultural Revolution, divided all those people from the rest of us nearly 30 years. It wasn't until about 30 years later that I began to meet some of them again and trying to recall our lives together. And of course, we all had pleasant memories of a, of a good time. We resumed our friendship quite readily, but it was nothing that we could have anticipated. You are, of course, an historian, but, but you write that you became interested in history relatively late in your education. Can you tell us why? My father was interested basically in literature. I mean, his interest in teaching me classical Chinese was to make sure that I understood the language and the roots of the language really well. I mean, he felt that if I simply started with modern Chinese, I would never fully understand the really deep background, the, the literary skills that were developed to make that language so wonderful. So his love of that language meant that he insisted that I should know the classical language first and can pick up the modern ones later on. That was the language we spoke anyway. Then his love for literature, as I said, he loved his English literature. He admired, actually, the English writers, particularly the poets. He passed a bit of that to me quite young. And when I went to China, because 
my Chinese was really not good enough. He decided the only way I could have got into the university was that I should take English literature, which I did. But in any case, I was fond of literature. As I said, uh, even the popular English novels helped to some extent to make me appreciate the beauties of the language. So my life began as someone fond of literature. And I thought that was my life. My life would be dedicated to literature and maybe try to write myself. So I never really had any interest in history. My father was not interested in history. History was just a background in which his great literary people lived and worked. And uh, he encouraged me to look at the literature part and to really master the language as, be- as best I could. History was something just there you picked up on the way. It was very much later in the University of Malaya in Singapore that I eventually decided that literature was not really my first choice of a career. At least I didn't think I could be a writer of any worth in the English language. And to see myself as a literary critic in English literature didn't attract me at all. Loving English literature is not the same as wanting to be a critic or historian of English literature. So instead, I found my history lectures far more interesting. And I also found that that was closer to my personal interest. I discovered that I was particularly interested in people, what they were like, how they trusted or distrusted each other, how people lived together happily, peacefully, and why they fought each other. And when they fought each other, why so bitterly, how they were turn themselves from peace-loving people into deadly, murderous people in the, in the state of war. All these pe- things became increasingly interesting to me. And eventually I came to the conclusion that history was the way for me to find out more so that I could understand these questions better. The title of the book, Home Is Not Here, points to one of the, the central themes, that is that the search for a sense of home. And you, you said that your family had always re- intended to return to live in China, but because of the deteriorating political situation in China in the late 1940s, that wasn't possible. If we could sort of zoom out a little bit, as a leading historian of the Southeast Asian Chinese, could you say something perhaps about the importance of the question of home for the Southeast Asian Chinese? In my background, home, at least in the eyes of my parents, was very much related to a country and a culture or a civilization. Always something very big and abstract. I never saw home as a small place or a, or a house or grounds and gardens and a small community because we were always somewhat different from everybody else. And we never intended to stay on anywhere in particular, always thinking of moving somewhere else. So the somewhere else that was home was always this abstract place far away characterized by its long history and glorious civilization and associated with a country. I think that was my idea of home. I didn't have any other idea, which is why I could say home is not here because I was identifying in the way that I was brought up to believe that I was destined to go back to China. What I learned later on, partly from my own life, returning to a Malaya that I was very fond of and really was very comfortable in, but never having thought of it as home, having to rethink as well my idea of home in quite different terms. So my idea of home shifted considerably in the course of the years after I returned from China. I had this rather simple idea, and it became much more complicated and much more tied with awareness of other kinds of relationship that made a place your home and make you think of it as home. 
And eventually, of course, I really came to the conclusion that actually home is something you make for yourself. And that uh, when I married and, and how I loved the family, and then we continued to move. We never stayed in one place for very long. We moved because of my job, my careers, and so on, and my identification with my work, my life in the university, which I loved. So in some ways, you might even add, I added another dimension. The university was also my home. But most of all, in the end, my wife, I think, summed it up for me very well. When we were moving from Kuala Lumpur to Canberra and looking at our things that we're bringing with us, not expecting that we'll go forever. We just were going away for a few years and we'll come back. But she summed it up beautifully for me anyway, when she said that actually home is where we are. And that's how I came to the that. To, to me, a very profound self-discovery. Reading Home Is Not Here, it feels like a really full autobiography. So much happens to you in, in the years that you write about. But the book actually finishes when you're only 19 years old. I have to ask you, are you planning another volume that continues the story of your life? I didn't have any plans to do that. But because uh, the book has interested my friends and my family, of course, I've been asked about this so many times, I decided to try and continue the story. At least uh, the part that I was rediscovering myself in Malaya at the university, starting my life afresh and thinking in quite different ways about where, how one can make a home anywhere. And that was something there driving me to find out where else could be home. So I am writing more, and I, I don't know how it will end at the moment, but if anything, I will take on the next decade or two covering my years at the University of Malaya, my studies in England, my return to work in Singapore and Kuala Lumpur, circumstances which were moving all the time. Nothing was stable. So it was a kind of state of flux, as it were, that I found myself living in. And it was that period, some 20 years or so, that I spent trying to recount what did I do, what was done in front of me, before my eyes, what I could understand of it, and how that helped me or shaped my thinking about where we belong, where we should go, how we should make full use of the life that we have and make use of all the skills and experiences that I have learned and be a useful citizen. I think those of us who've read Home is Not Here would look forward very much to that, that second part of your memoir. Professor Bangangwo, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your memoir, Home is Not Here, which was published in 2018 by NUS Press under the Ridge Books imprint. Thank you for the chance to talk to you. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with the history of the Southeast Asian Chinese, like Karen Teo's Schooling Diaspora, Women, Education and the Overseas Chinese in British Malaya and Singapore, 1850s to 1960s, or Anthony Reed's A History of Southeast Asia, Critical Crossroads. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. Hey, thank God, sweet, get the tin to bow. Monkey!